So, okay, so welcome everyone back again. And we have got a very interesting Torah portion, but we didn't have a class last week. So I want to speak about both last week and this week. And we also just began a period uh, in the Jewish calendar, which I want to talk about as well. So let's just start with the calendar and then we'll get on to the Torah portion, see how far we, we get. And I'll go, I'll go for, let's say, half an hour and then I'll, I'll take questions. So this past Sunday was the beginning of uh, what's called the three weeks. And the three weeks begins with the 17th of Tammuz, the month of Tammuz. And we begin the three weeks with a fast day. There were five things that happened on the 17th of, of Tammuz that we mourn about. And one of them was that the, the, the walls of the te first temple were breached by the Babylonians. And then three weeks later, we are going to have the day of Tisha B'Av, which is another fast day. That's a much more serious day that also commemorates the destruction of the first and the second temples. And that's something we're still mourning to this day. And the Western Wall, the Koisal that remains in Yerushalayim, is not even part of the temple. It's a part of the wall that surrounded the temple. And this is a period of time where we should be thinking about what we are really missing and why it is that we are still mourning 2,000 years later. In fact, there's a, a uh, I don't know if this is a urban legend, but they say that Napoleon, let's say Napoleon lived, I don't know, a thousand years ago. Uh, he was once walking through the streets of Paris and he, he noticed or he heard the sound of crying coming from a synagogue. And he asked his advisor, you know, what, what's going on? Why are all the Jews crying? So the advisor told him that they are mourning the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And he asked them and he asked his advisor, but when did that happen? So he said a thousand years ago. So he said, if there's a people that are still mourning a thousand years later with such emotion, then I am sure that they will be redeemed and they will have their temple rebuilt. And that's apparently what Napoleon said. But the idea is that you would have expected that 2,000 years after an event, you know, the Jewish people would have forgotten about the temple. And there are some people, not traditional Jews. Um, sorry, I was just looking for something. I brought it here. Um, just hold on one second. Um, there are some traditional Jews, not, I mean, some, some Jews 
who say, well, what do we need a temple for? We've got Israel. We've got the state of Israel. And we haven't had the temple for 2,000 years. There's a mosque on the top of the temple mount right now. Unlikely we're going to get a temple. Why, why should we Why should we mourn? Hi, Marty. Hello. Why should we mourn and why should we, why should we pray for the temple? So that sentiment, that sentiment of why, why do we need a temple is clearly based on the fact that they don't understand what it is that we're missing. Like, what did we lose? What did we lose when we, when the temple was destroyed? Beside the fact that uh, we were exiled out of Israel and there was a lot of people that, that died, um, you know, but someone who says that we don't need the temple doesn't understand what it is that we're missing. And this period of time is also a time to look into that and to, and to try and figure out what it is that we pray for. You know, Jews pray three times a day. Uh, and we ask for lots of things. We ask for our health. And we ask for panacea, for livelihood. We ask for justice in the world. We ask, you know, um, uh, for protection of our um, uh, wise people and that our enemies should be destroyed. But we also pray three times a day that the temple should be rebuilt. And a lot of what we do when we wash our hands for bread, when, when we... Um, when we break the glass under the chuppah, you know, all these are things that remind us of the temple. And we've been doing this for thousands of years and we are smart people and we've survived and we continue to survive. And there must be a reason why we, why we pray for this temple to be rebuilt. And the other thing is that there must be a reason why the temple has not been rebuilt in 2000 years. The first temple was destroyed. And it got rebuilt 70 years later. The second temple was destroyed. And 2,000 years later, we don't have a temple still. And the rabbis say, the rabbis say that the reason is because the sin that caused the destruction of the second temple has not been rectified. And then they say something which is very scary. They say that the fact that it has not been rebuilt is as if it was destroyed in our own generation. The fact that we have not corrected that sin, it's as if we destroyed the temple itself. So again, if we now spend time understanding that when we had the temple, there was a connection that we had to, to Hashem, and not just us, but the entire world was connected on a much higher spiritual level, and we lost that, and we are responsible, so then we should figure out, well, what is it that destroyed the temple and what is it that we can do to repair it? And there are a number of reasons. One of the most famous is that we exhibited needless hatred for each other. We, and that's a big discussion. Maybe we'll talk about it another time. Uh, we spoke lots and horror about each other. So there's a very big push during these three weeks to work on our interpersonal relationships and not to speak badly about other people. Um, another 
another big thing is learning Torah. The rabbis say that we didn't have enough respect for the Torah. So these classes that we're doing is the equivalent of rebuilding the temple. Now, rabbis say that we are living in a time of history that is very close to what's, what's called the, the days of the Mashiach and the rebuilding of the temple. And that during that time, there are going to be lots of upheavals and lots of dangerous things that are going to happen. And I just heard, this was a couple of weeks ago, that history is going to speed up towards the end. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, I would say the last couple of years, it feels to me that things are just moving at an ever faster pace. You know, not just technology, but just the, the, the conflicts that are happening in the world. And, you know, even just COVID, the way it spread throughout the world so quickly and just shut the whole world down. So uh, this is a good time. This is a good time to uh, commit to learning a little bit about the laws of Lashon Hara or committing to committing to uh, learn a little bit more Torah. Marty, you, just before you got on, uh, Lou told me that he's retiring at the end of July and we're just busy in a, a sales agreement over here, negotiation, whether he's going to study for one hour a day of Torah or, or a little bit less. We haven't, we haven't come up with the exact number yet, but that's, that's what we're busy. But either way, we should all be trying to learn a little bit more Torah. Uh, so now when I was at Shul this past week at Shari Tzedek and Rabbi Gross, uh, the rabbi over there spoke, he said something very interesting. He said that this is actually the beginning, not just of a three week period. And this three week period, by the way, you're going to see, I had a nice haircut. I was in Lakewood last week. So I had a very nice haircut. Hey, did you notice my haircut? You know what, Marty, I was just about to comment. What a beautiful haircut you got. Didn't I'm I get a great haircut? I'm guessing that you did this because you know that for the next three weeks, the next three weeks, we don't have haircuts. Oh, absolutely. That's right. So I'm very, very proud of you. And uh, well done on getting a haircut before the three weeks started. So the other thing that we, we don't do, by the way, is we don't listen to music for the next three weeks and we don't have weddings and towards the end of the three weeks the during the last nine days we don't bathe we don't take showers we don't change our our clothes we don't wear fresh clothing and uh that leads us into tissue above wait tell me about this that's right so listen, what you need to do is you need, you need to get a copy of this book called The Laws of the Three Weeks. Okay. Okay, I just want to say hi to Mark and Mona in, I don't know if it's Cleveland or Florida right now. I hope you can, can you hear me okay there, Zadie? I don't know if they can hear me. Just give me a thumbs up if you can, if you can hear me over there in Florida. Or in Cleveland, where we are. Anyway, you can wish them muzzle talk because they just became great grandparents. Wow. Awesome. Their, their granddaughter, their granddaughter, that's 
my son-in-law's sister. Uh, there they go. Hi. Hi, Mona. Hi, Rabbi Khan. How are you? I am doing great. I just, I don't know if you heard, I just wanted it's to wish you mazel tov. Is it, uh, just remind me again, is this your first great-granddaughter? Yes, it's our first great-grandchild. First great-grandchild. Well, you can, uh, mom, you can wish uh, Mona and Mark uh, mazel tov because my mother also became a great-grandmother with uh, the birth of our little Esty. But mazel tov, and I saw pictures of, of uh, Esty uh, with the baby. I don't know if you've seen the pictures yet. We've seen many pictures, not with your um, daughter-in-law and the baby, but with four kids and the baby. Excellent. Wonderful. Well, I know Maybe that you... Gary Sheva sent us the first few pictures. Wow. So, um, Mona, how does it feel like to be married to a great-grandfather? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Zem. He's getting more crotchety by the day. <laughs> not sure. Well, you should have lots of nachas from all your children, all your grandchildren, and your great great granddaughter, and many more to come, please, God. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay, we'll dedicate, you know what we'll do? We should have already said this earlier on. We'll dedicate this class in honor of the new great granddaughter, but also uh, in the merit of a you know a miracle happening in Florida. I just read a saw an article that the, the IDF uh, search team still believes that there are survivors buried in the rubble in Florida. So, so we have we have to pray for miracles. It, it must be very, very difficult. And, you know, when anything happens to any of the Jewish people, whether it's a Simcha or it's a Tzara, we feel like one big family. So we share in your Simcha and we share in the sorrow and the, the, the pain yeah, and the do. it was a terrible tragedy yeah it uh, it really was and you know it happened just before the three weeks started but the three weeks typically is a period of time a period of time where you know you, you're not supposed to go to court against a non-jew for example you're not you're not really supposed to travel you shouldn't fly and take big trips during the three weeks, we, we sometimes hear of things that happen. People are nervous because this is not a good time of, in the calendar for the Jewish people. Now, we are always a people that are different to the rest of the world. In fact, I'll, there's one line in last week's Torah portion, uh, because we didn't have a class last week, where the wicked prophet Bilam uh, gets hired to curse the Jewish people. And instead, God puts blessings into his mouth. And one of the blessings he gives is that we are a people that live alone. We are separate from the rest of the world. And we are different. And one of the ways that we are different is that while everybody else is at the beach and enjoying the summer and going out and about, we are, you know, thinking about what, what it is that we're missing in our lives and what the temple represents and how we can improve ourselves so that we can be a part of the rebuilding of the third temple. Now, Rabbi Gross, I was just mentioning, Rabbi Gross 
who's the rabbi Charit Tzedek, mentioned that this is actually the beginning, not just of a three-week period. It's the beginning of the period that goes through Tisha B'Av. And then there is another seven weeks. Seven weeks goes from Tisha B'Av until the end of Av, until the end of Elul. Elul is uh, the month after Av. Those are called the seven weeks of consolation. The Torahs that we read are upbeat, optimistic uh, prophecies by the prophets about when the temple will be rebuilt and we will have a better world to live in. And then at the end of that begins a 22-day period, which starts with Rosh Hashanah, continues through Yom Kippur and Sukkot, and then ends with Shemini Atzeres and Simchus Torah. So we're really talking about the beginning of a 13-week period that just started this Sunday. Now, I don't want you to get too nervous and start thinking about Rosh Hashanah quite yet. <laughs> you know, I don't have my chicken soup in the freezer yet. That's right. And you... Uh, we're, we're, uh, already, we're already concerned with Hanukkah, which is coming at the end of Thanksgiving. Uh, well, you know, I'm waiting for the lumber prices to go down before I put up my sukkah this year. Mm -hmm. um, but Rabbi Gross mentioned that it seems, it seems like, it, you know, Judaism doesn't say that we have to be, you know, indoors all the time. Uh, studying Torah, you know, 24 hour, every waking moment uh, in the, in the shul all the time. Uh, there is a place for taking a break and having relaxation and enjoying yourself. And that's one of the reasons why our kids have always gone to summer camps and they live the whole year for those summer camps. They love these camps and everybody should take a little bit of a break. Everybody should um, go out and see God's wonderful creation. You know, go, go see the mountains, go see the rivers, go see the oceans. You know, I know, I know the Hebels have traveled a lot. They can tell you, I've seen lots of pictures of the wonders of the, of the world. But the reason we're doing that is not because we want to get away from God. We're not trying to get away from serving Hashem. What we're trying to do is get closer to serving Hashem. And when you see the great wonders of the world and you get a time to, you know, contemplate these things, then you feel a sense of love for Hashem and you feel gratitude. You know, when there's watermelon on the table and the barbecue is going, you can be very grateful. You're playing with your great, your granddaughter, you know, or spending time with your family and your friends, there's a lot to be grateful for. And Judaism says, direct that gratitude towards Hashem. And then when you start thinking about that, that is an excellent way to prepare yourself for, you know, for the coming weeks and months, because it, we all know the value of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot, but you need to be ready for it. You can't just walk into it. You need to be prepared. And to be prepared, that means physically and emotionally, Spiritually, so you. This is a period of time. Like I said, we don't. I I was at three weddings in three days in three different cities last week. So I went to. I know. Well, I was only one air. Only one air flight because uh, one was in Chicago, 
One was in Patterson, New Jersey, and one was in Lakewood, New Jersey. So I only had to fly into, flew into Philadelphia. But it was, you know, is it, there's a time for, you know, for Simcha, and then there's a time now for, for morning. Okay, so what I want to just do, what I want to just do in for another five minutes, and then I'll take questions, is tell you a little bit about this week's Torah portion. This week's Torah portion is called Pinchas. Hey. What? That's not your name. I thought your name's Mordechai, Marty. Mordechai Pinchas. No way. This hey. is your Torah portion. My dad's name is Pinchas. Oh, you're, so you're Mordechai Ben Pinchas. Oh, I'm sorry. Mordechai Yosef. Yeah, Mordechai Yosef. Those were my parents' uh, uh, father. Yeah, Ben Pinchas. I'm sorry. Ben yeah. Pinchas. So you're Mordechai Lewis, Ben Pinchas. Lewis, why didn't you correct me? Okay, now, well, some people have got two names, but you Mordechai, the son of... So Pinchas... Mordechai, Yosef, Mordechai was my mom's dad. Yosef was my dad's dad. And it's Pinchas was my dad. Mordechai, Yosef, and Pinchas. Fantastic. Well, I think in honor of your father, Pinchas, I think you should go right onto artscroll.com and order an artscroll stone chumash so you can get the chumash in your hands before the parsha begins on Friday. If you... If you, uh, in fact, Marty, I should, uh, you can probably get one up in West Rogers Park if you, uh, if you went today or tomorrow. But I'll tell you a little bit about the parish of Pinchas. So, okay, yeah. Pinchas was a person who was, uh, uh, he, he loved the Jewish people and he wanted to bring peace amongst the Jewish people. But he, we get introduced to him in a an act of violence. He saw a, a Jewish prince committing uh, an immoral act with a Midianite princess, and he took a spear and he stabbed the two of them and killed them. That was what Pinchas did. And for that, God gave him a covenant of peace. So sometimes... To bring peace requires a lot of strength and a lot of moral clarity because everybody around him, you know, didn't do anything, but Pinchas did. And then God actually commands the Jewish people to attack the Midianites. And then he does a census. We have another census where he counts the, the Jewish people. And there's um, a fascinating passage which discusses the laws of inheritance, which I'm going to come back to in a moment. And then Moses, Moshe appoints a successor to himself, uh, Joshua. And then there's a discussion, a listing of all the daily offerings for Shabbos, for the holidays, Rosh Chodesh. That's, uh, that's, there's a lot jam-packed into the, into the Torah portion. So there's, there's uh, a a very nice piece in the Sefer Achinuch, which I have been talking about a lot in uh, in this class. That's also put out by Art Scroll called the Book of Mitzvahs. So what I find fascinating is, you know, that the Torah has got the Torah has got an intricate 
system of inheritance laws and how property and wealth is passed on to the next generation. And in fact, uh, the section of the Talmud that all three of my children are learning right now is called Baba Basra and has a whole chapter on inheritance. But the laws of inheritance are, sp are spread out throughout the, the Torah. And there's a big discussion about what a person should do if they have sons and daughters. Or if they don't have children, what they're supposed to do, or if uh, if they if let's say their children died, God forbid, you know, like unfortunately, what's happening in Florida, there's going to be a lot of discussion now about what's going to happen to the assets of the people who died. Judaism has got a whole system, but what happens if you want to give? Basically, the law says that the firstborn child, son, firstborn son gets a double portion, and the other sons get. Uh, divided equally the assets so if the father's got a hundred dollars and he's got three sons the first son will get fifty dollars and the other two sons will get twenty five dollars each that's how that's how it would be split according to torah law but what happens if he's got daughters um or and one or if he's got three sons and he's got one daughter so that this week's torah portion discusses the inheritance of land uh, that came a question that came about because there were a group of daughters of someone named Slavchad who died in the desert and he didn't have sons and and they were given property based on a discussion that God ha had with Moses about these laws and that's why it comes up in this week's Torah portion because that discussion happens in this week's Torah portion but what I want to just read to you is what my favorite part of the Sefer Chinuch is, and this speaks to speaks to us, and then I'll take some questions. He says um, like this. He says that um, <coughs> we have to follow the Torah's protocol of inheritance in order that a person should know and contemplate that the world is controlled by a master who is attentive to all of his creations, and it is by virtue of his will and his benevolent desire that, that each and every one of the world's inhabitants merits to receive the specific portions of assets that he acquires in this world. So translated, that means that God runs the world, and he gives each and every single one of us exactly what we need. Whatever we have, whether it's a condo downtown or it's a condo in Florida or it's a great granddaughter or, you know, or a nice, you know, a house in, uh, what's it, the San Fernando Valley. Where are you, Debbie? Which, which part of California are you? Uh, no, no, you're the, yeah, so Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley. All right. So whatever we get, we have to know that it comes from Hashem. We don't need to be jealous of what anybody else has because whatever we have is what we meant to have. Whatever anybody else has is what they meant to have. Um, and then he says, 
the gift really ought to continue forever because that's what belongs to you. And that's the way it should have been, except that Adam and Eve sinned and death came into the world. And therefore, a person's assets don't go with them to the next world. So there's a system of what you do to pass it on. And he says, um, it is most appropriate that the blessing of his gift should automatically extend to a body that is derived from that first recipient, which is his son, or in the absence of a son, his daughter. And if he dies without having children, that they should be directed to his closest living relative. Because the blessing of Hashem that the first recipient merited may have been generated for him by either his own worthiness or the worthiness of his ancestors, or perhaps with his close association with his closest relatives, that he learned the skill through which he earned those possessions. Um, and so basically what it's saying is that the people that are closest to you are the ones that deserve your inheritance. Now, obviously, there are people that you, a person might feel close to that he wants to give money away to or certain charities he wants to give to. So, again, I'm not an expert in this, but there are rabbis that are experts in this, and they will advise you if you're interested in setting up a, a halachic will where it goes according to the Torah. And then there are ways that you can also give to other people as well or to other organizations. You can also give that money away before a person dies. It doesn't have to be just at a person's death or it could be given uh, retroactively in a legal way a moment before the person dies so that he's left with only the mon money that he gives away according to the Torah. But I just find it fascinating that this was discussed in the Talmud, you know, 2000 years ago, during the time that the temple was, you know, destroyed and we being exiled. I don't know how many other people in the world have inheritance laws that go back 2000 years, you know, um, and, and we believe this came from God. So we believe that it's equitable. I don't need to tell you the, you know, the sad stories of, of court cases of, you know, inheritance and how people fight over inheritances and the Torah is trying to bring about a system where it creates peace and harmony uh, and not, and not conflict. All right. There's more to talk about. If, if there are no more questions, I can continue, but I'm going to take a break and ask if anybody has any questions. Uh, and uh, Marty, I don't know if you, if you heard, but uh, the Hebbles just became great grandparents this week. So uh, I'm going to give them first dibs today in honor of their great granddaughter. But if they don't have any questions, I'm going to open it up to everyone else. So, Mark and Mona, do you have any any questions that you'd like to ask me about life, the universe, this week's Torah portion? Well, two things. What? Oh. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. We lost you. I know. I can still hear you, but I, I don't see you. Okay. I was just wanting to say two quick things. 
my children, Haya Freda and Shui, chose to name their newborn daughter after my mother, whose name was Rifka. Wow. And I, I was just so touched by it because they have so many relatives and so many family. And um, my mother really had a relationship with her great-grandchildren and she loved them and gives me a lot of knock. But hopefully her neshama will continue in the, this beautiful new life. That's wonderful. Um, I think you told me a little bit about your mother. Tell, tell everyone else, just tell us one, one character trait that your mother had that inspired you. Well, my mother was not a, a woman of means. She didn't have a lot, but she, whenever a birthday came around, she would stick a $5 bill in the birthday card and send it off. And then she'd call me and she'd say, I wish I could have given them more. And I said to her, you know, you love them and that's all that matters. And um, when I would take her with me to Lakewood to visit the, her great-grandchildren, my grandchildren, she would go to the dollar store and buy a bunch of little trinkets and hand them out. And they, they always remembered that, that she always thought about them in the best way that she could. And I thought that was very... Um, special well so that i mean were you were you surprised when you heard the name did, did that uh, a little said- bit yeah i mean i had thought about it but i had never asked them it was not my place or my business to yeah. um, go into their um, choices but when they told me uh, high afraid is that there was never a question i i was just uh Overcome, I, I know my brother said my mother was smiling in heaven. <laughs> well, that is so beautiful. Okay, there was one more thing you wanted to say. Are you afraid is named after her? Oh, right. Excuse me, this wasn't it, but Mark just reminded me. Haya Freda is named after Mark's mother, whose name was Haya Freda. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there we go. Um. Getting back to this inheritance thing. Yes. There was a point in time where we felt when we made out our estate planning that we would just divide whatever we had. Among, we have four children, amongst mm. the four children. And as the years went on and we saw how they were developing, it was suggested to us that we give more to the ones that needed it more right. and a little rest to the ones that were managing better. Yes. So that's what we eventually did. So I hope that we did the right thing. But um, there it is. You know, I, I think that's a, that's a great point that you're making. And I, and I think that happens, you know, in, in Orthodox families also that find that situation happening um, and there are ways that you can that you can still fulfill the Torah obligation. You know, we want to keep the Torah as best as we possibly can. We believe when you do a mitzvah, it's what ultimately is our purpose in in this world is is to do the mitzvahs as well as we 
possibly can. So I'm sure that uh, you did the right thing. What you might want to do is speak to, you know, one of the children that you have that is a, a rabbi to find out are there, are there ways that you can make sure that it still fulfills the Torah instructions. And that might be, that might, but that's a beautiful thing to do. But the, you know, it's, it's very nice that you're saying two things that are quite, we're talking about inheritance uh, and legacy and, and what you leave behind. But, you know, your, your mother, you know, her, her legacy is, is her children and grandchildren and great grandchildren. That's, that's ultimately our biggest legacy. You know, some of us, uh, uh, leave bigger legacies than others. Uh, and it doesn't always be, it's not always children. They are great, great people who didn't have children, but the mitzvahs that they do and the charity that they give, that becomes their legacy. It's not so much what they possess, you know, the big mansions and the big bank accounts uh, that they leave, leave over. It's the good deeds that they, that they did. That was very, very, very nice. All right. Any other questions or comments um, before I tell you about the next mitzvah? Um, Can I ask something about Pinchas? Yes, please, Mom. Um, how did he take it upon himself to kill those two people? Yes. And, and why did he get away with it? Why was he not punished as other people are punished? That, that's a great, great question. You know, my mother asks such, such great questions. And all I will say I to you... I, I don't know if they're great questions. It's just that it sort of puzzles me, you know, yes. that I don't understand. Well, you know what I would say... What I, what, what I would say is, in my years of learning Torah... In my years of learning Torah, I have a question on almost every single sentence in the Torah. Every time I read it and every year that comes by, I've got more and more questions of why this happened and why that happened and uh, why this law and why that law. And I think that that is one of the hallmarks of Judaism is that we encourage questions and investigation and inquiry. You should be asking these questions. But if you ask this question, I can guarantee you, as smart as you are, because I know you've got smart children and great and smart grandchildren, and you've got a very, very smart great granddaughter, I have to tell you, she is talking away and she understands everything we tell her and she inherits your intelligent genes for sure. But as smart as you are, this question has been asked, you know, by every generation and every body that studies the Torah. They want to know exactly your question. Why did Pinchas do this if nobody else did it? Moshe didn't do it. Aaron didn't do it. Um, why did why did Pinchas do it? And why did he get not only why did he get away with it, but he was actually, and I'm now reading again from Mari and Lou, the art school Chumash, that uh, it says over here that 
you never give up the chance to push that. I'm telling yeah, you. Yeah, I know. Listen, you're gonna you're gonna thank me for it when you get it. Okay. What was more, God rewarded him by appointing him a Cohen. He became a yeah, Cohen, yeah. and which oh, yeah, denoted yeah. a covenant of peace. Did so become a Cohen. He became a Cohen. No kidding. Now. It's a whole big discussion of how exactly he became a Kohen because God said at a certain point, these are all the Kohenim and no more. And because of what he did, um, so the the answer is, I'm going to read you, I'm going to read you from Art Scroll. It says that it was only because of God that he was given this covenant of peace and was appointed as a coin. Pinchas had put an end to a devastating plague that had taken 24,000 lives in retribution for the orgy of immorality with a Moabite and Midianite woman. And instead of applauding him, however, the people accused him of murder and protested that this grandson who, who fattened cause to be sacrificed to idol, idols had the gall to kill a prince in Israel. Um, so, Mom, it wasn't even just you that asked the questions or all the great rabbis over the centuries. The Jewish people themselves asked this question, and they said, how can you do such a thing? But God called him a descendant of Aaron, who was distinguished for his love of mankind and the pursuit of peace. Uh, and it says uh, that had it not been for him, the plague would have continued. And he says that um, so, so I think I think your question is a very good question. The, the 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 this idea of what Pinchas did is is not such a simple thing. You know, when we read the story of Pinchas. We want to learn lessons for today as well. And some people, <coughs> unfortunately, excuse me. <coughs> um, <coughs> some people, unfortunately, become zealous themselves. <coughs> Sorry, I've just had a. A little bit of a cough this week. Um, <clears throat> there have been stories of, <clears throat> of people in Jewish history <coughs> that have become zealots like Pinchas and taken the laws, the law into their own hands and sometimes done things in the name of religion and have said that it's in the name of peace. And a person who does that, <coughs> excuse me, a person who does that has to be on a very, very high spiritual level to be able to justify what he does. We have a Torah that tells us that God himself agreed to this and gave him the covenant of peace. I don't know how many other people can say that, that they know that God would be happy with what they did. 
So sometimes there's something called righteous indignation. I'm sure you've heard of <coughs> when a person will stand up and, and say something very strongly and say, I'm not doing this for myself. It's the principle that's important. And they'll get very upset with someone. They might <coughs> even become violent. And I think, Mom, the message really to, to us is that it's such a rare person that can have such purity of most of, uh, of motives that he's doing it solely to protect the Jewish people. And that, I think, is the lesson of because Unfortunately, in Israel, where emotions run high in general, you often find religious zealots or non-religious zealots that do things in the name of, we find this in this country, I think, more and more now. Uh, I think we're living in a, in a time in, this, in the world where divisions are so great and people so unwilling to listen to the other side's point of view that they will do things in the name of peace or they will do things in the name of principle and cause more harm than anything else. So it's a great way to, a great way to close the circle that we started with. We started off talking about the three weeks and that the three weeks is a period of time where we are supposed to introspect and think to ourselves how we can improve our relationships with each other. And we are talking about a Torah portion that talks about a zealot who was in a very high spiritual level. We should probably be honest with ourselves. And when we feel like we have some very strong point to make, we have to look deep inside ourselves and see if there's any personal, you know, motivation that we might have. So I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah. yeah. It did. Um, yeah, it did. All right. We've got three more minutes. Marty, do you have any questions or Debbie, do you have any comments you want to make? How's, what's it like in the, are you caught in this um, heat dome up in the Northwest? So luckily, you know, we're, we're not uh, in the, in the heat. Um, uh, actually, this last weekend, I uh, started taking a class at uh, the shul that Sarah Felson and her family are, go to, and I saw Francine Geller there. So I had a chance to meet up with her and see a few other Googlers. So that was very nice. Excellent. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the whole concept of Tishikov is, is feels so new um, to me. Yes. Emphasized, really. And so it's just interesting and... Uh, I guess my question would be in these weeks of consolation that occur afterwards, like what, what is the vision of it, what it would be like if the temple were rebuilt? Like what, what would that be? What would that look like? It's, yeah. it's, uh, that's a, that's also an outstanding question. I'll tell you what we'll do. It's almost four o'clock. Yeah. Maybe so next let's, time. No, let's pick that up and let's talk about that a little bit more, what it is that we, that we must, and it's, it's very, very difficult, you know, for myself and for many people, even the great rabbis to really understand what it was 
that uh, occurred during the times of the temple. Mm-hmm. You know, right now I'm learning in the Talmud, the whole tractate about Yom, the Yom Kippur service that took place in the temple. And, and the very detailed description, which we read about on Yom Kippur itself. And there are some, I just saw when I was in Lakewood last week, I saw a book mm-hmm. with pictures of, of, of what that service looked like. And if you go to, if you go to Israel now, you go to, you go to the Khoisal, you go to the Western wall, they have this fantastic um, virtual reality uh, experience that you can have where you put on these goggles and you at the temple and you're walking <laughs> around and you, and, and they go through a, a story, which I think is an, uh, an excellent example of using technology for the right reasons, you know, not using it just for games and, you know, things like that. But um, the, the, the simple answer, the simple answer is, that we had a much closer connection to Hashem when the temple was was built. Uh, it's a little bit like it's a little bit like having your 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 parents living with you mm-hmm. and and living you know a thousand miles away where you get a you know you can speak to them on a on a phone you know without without a Zoom you know connection. Or maybe even not even a phone, maybe just a, a letter or something like that. You know, you could see God's presence much more clearly. Mm-hmm. We had prophecy. You know, we knew what was right. We knew what was wrong. Um, we were at peace with each other. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't perfect, obviously, because the temple was destroyed because of our the way we treated each other, but. The ideal, the, the utopia that we, we pray for is that when the temple gets rebuilt, that everybody understands what our purpose in life is. Yeah. And everybody understands the purpose of the Jewish people, including the Jewish people themselves. And that there's world peace, you know, it would be, if that was all that it brought, if having the temple, were, all that it brought was world peace, that would be enough, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, I, I think, I think I'll spend more time on it, maybe next week and the week afterwards, and we'll talk about what it is that we're missing, and then leading up to to Elul as well. Um, all right, everyone, thank you very much for taking time off. Basil to again to to Mark thank and Mona. You, Thanks, thank Mom. Yeah, All right. Yeah. And have a have a wonderful have a wonderful service, everyone.